the old world is ending, and we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the structural problems in our world and the real solutions that we have today to transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse into a collaborative and sustainable futuristic society that serves all life. You may think it's an impossible dream, but the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Zachary Marlowe, Matt Holton, and Amanda Smith. And together, when we can move past this economic absurdity to come together and actualize our collective potential to create something completely new, we are Moneyless Society. Whether you are committed to ending homelessness, strengthening education, improving public health, reducing the problems of poverty, developing environmental sustainability, or helping people live better lives in other ways, you might have noticed that the organizations and systems you want to change have a life of their own. In other words, you do things to try to improve them, and they essentially continue to operate as if your input makes no difference. Organizations and social systems do, in fact, have a life of their own. As someone committed to achieving sustainable, breakthrough social change, it helps to understand these forces so you can consciously work with them instead of unconsciously working against them. In an era when growing income inequality and climate change increase the vulnerability of many and reduce the sustainability of all, you might feel called to do more to heal the world. You might also be challenged to achieve more with less. Because systems thinking challenges people to take more responsibility for their actions and make hard choices, as you build your capacity to think systemically, you'll discover that the tools both enable and require you to develop a new way of being, not just doing. A little excerpt from the book, Systems Thinking for Social Change. So our guest today is David Peter Stroh. David Peter Stroh is internationally recognized for his work in enabling leaders to apply systems thinking to achieve breakthroughs around chronic, complex problems. He's been described as a magician who helped us tremendously in getting to core issues with the mind of a scientist and the heart of a healer. In my opinion, this is an outstanding book. It goes really in depth into systems as far as, I mean, compared to my knowledge, I'm somewhat of a beginner and an amateur when it comes to systems thinking. But with the topic that we have with the Moneyless Society, kind of a lot of the circles that are involved with that, like the, you know, the Venus Project and Zeitgeist Movement, they, they talk a lot about systems thinking as well, looking at different systems and how they interact, you know, our economic system, our ecological systems, different parts of society, our institutions, banks, the monetary system. And so we think about systems a lot in our work and how they interact with each other, how they affect each other, the repercussions, the feedback loops and things like that. And so I feel like our work is related to what you do in a pretty in-depth way and that you might help us gain a little bit of a better grasp about systems thinking, uh, how we can apply it to our work. But I guess to start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into systems thinking and why this is important to you? I was originally interested in becoming an urban transportation planner. You know, it's all about helping people connect more effectively to each other. And there is both a engineering and design component to it. And there's also a social and psychological aspect to it. I have a BS in civil engineering. I also have a BA in urban studies. And then I went for my master's in uh, urban planning at MIT. And during my first semester there, 
I read a chapter of a book written by one of my professors on the role of the integrator in society. And I got really interested in that, and it just seemed to click for me. I had worked in uh, government bureaucracies before that, summer jobs, and it had all seemed very um, bureaucratic and divided up and not a lot of synergy between different parts of the organization, and somehow that all felt wrong. And he pointed me to the Sloan School of Management and something called organization development. And I started taking courses in it and got very excited about the values that uh, people in that field espoused about people being more responsible than we tend to give them credit for, more capable, more motivated. I wanted to learn more about all of that. So I kind of dove in, but with part of me. And the reason was that even though I really identified with the values of this field that I was learning about, a lot of the practitioners seemed to not have a lot of influence on the organizations they were trying to change. Their focus was very much on uh, process, and it was on feelings, all of which, by the way, are, are very, very important, but tended to miss what I then, uh, several years later, came to appreciate as the power of focusing on purpose, on vision, aspiration, on not just process, but process in service of results, and those results in turn being in service of aspirations and values uh, that were meaningful to me. Uh, there was also an emphasis put not just on feelings, but also how do we think? And how does our thinking impact our feelings? And of course, how do our feelings impact our thinking? There was also an emphasis both on individual responsibility and on structure, system structure, policies, processes, procedures, but also perceptions, how people think. The underlying purpose of a system is a critical part of what we call in this field systems structure. So the interaction between structure and behavior. So in the late 1970s, <clears throat> I had an opportunity to co-found a consulting firm that brought together a lot of these different ideas. Um, the idea of systems thinking, the idea of aspirational visionary leadership, the idea of personal mastery, and the viewpoint of personal responsibility. At that point, the New Age movement, human potential movement, had really uh, taken off and to some extent supplanted the um, <clears throat> more feeling-oriented approaches to uh, behavioral science that organization development was originally founded on. So it was, it, it was a, a synthesis between a lot of different elements that had never been put together uh, before and turned out to be enormously successful. One of the other co-founders of that consulting firm, which was called Innovation Associates, was Peter Senge, 
And Peter Senge became uh, famous for the book he wrote called The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. Uh, and pretty much all of the work in that book, uh, all of the ideas, all the principles and so on and tools uh, were ones that innovation associates had essentially pioneered starting in the late 70s. Um, the fifth discipline, as in the title of the book, was systems thinking. And because of my uh, perhaps engineering mind, um, I became really interested in how systems thinking is a catalyst for behavioral change hmm. and performance improvement. Um, and because of my own uh, values and upbringing, I was very committed to applying those ideas to social change and environmental sustainability, not just to helping businesses make more profit. And that's why ultimately, when I wrote my book on systems thinking and the integration of that with change management, so it's not just how you think, but also how do you integrate these ideas and tools into um, the practice of changing social systems. Uh, that's what the book focused on. And because of my, my own values, as I say, I wanted to emphasize how these ideas and these tools could apply to social and environmental uh, performance improvement, not just financial results uh, for a company. I just love the fact that you basically said and all that you expounded on that, that um, systems thinking, systems design, systems structure, all dictates the uh, resulting behavior of the people living within the environment um, of that social structure or what have you. And it's, it's even uh, more interesting to me that you noted before our conversation that you had not um, dealt into the Venus Project particularly, which premised on, like I said, social social design, intentional social design, uh, and systems thinking a holistic approach in order to achieve efficacy of uh, natural resource application and how people play a part in society. Basically, the most efficient and egalitarian socioeconomic design that can be achieved. So having stated all of that and um, everything that you expounded on there, uh, obviously, is just valuable information to know to know in. But how would you bullet down to the people that are still trying to wrap their heads around just what social design, social structure is, especially for the sector of society that tend to just focus on symptoms of the social design instead of accepting or even looking outside of the box, if you will, to see that everything is connected and it's all part of one system and the system is at the root of the problem or the root of the benefit. Great set of questions, uh, Amanda, <laughs> and not being intimately or, or at all, uh, actually, uh, sadly, uh, familiar yet with the Venus Project. I can answer in perhaps more general terms, and you can point me in the right direction as we go. To me, one of the challenges that we always have is how do we bound the system? Because systems are pointing to the, the reality that ultimately everything is connected, but it's very hard to um, to change everything. Uh, 
We use uh, the concept of a focusing question. So when you're faced with um, behavior that you don't want or trying to achieve a goal that you're having difficulty accomplishing despite your best efforts, we encourage people to ask the question, why often despite your best efforts, have you been unable to achieve this particular goal or solve this particular problem? Yes, Zachary. Actually, uh, I have a quote prepared today that I wanted to read um, that basically asks that central question, and it's a quote by Stafford Beer, and it says, the purpose of a system is what it does. There is, after all, no point in claiming that the purpose of a system is to do what it constantly fails to do. You were talking about working in uh, bureaucracy, and our government bureaucracy especially is so completely ineffectual at meeting our needs. I mean, it's so obvious that so many functions of our society are just completely broken from our energy grid to our social system to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people without homes, health care. We can't even meet our basic needs. It seems obvious. I was talking to a friend about this last night. It seems obvious we just get, we need to fix these systems. But it's 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 contradictory to the countervailing logic and principle goal of the existing system we have today. And I think so many people stagger in their ability to fix this fix any of these problems, you know, especially on an individual basis because they're trying to fix one problem without realizing that even if you did attempt to fix that one problem, say give people health care, uh, it's still attached to a system uh, that in every other one of its aspects is reinforcing basically the incentivization of, of uh, you know, privatization to keep people from those services and to keep those, those services from coming to people and that the disincentivization of uh, essentializing those services to, to help people. I, I kind of wanted to add one thing that I think is really relevant here. Um, and you're talking about, uh, you know, like essentially what they call leverage points in systems thinking things, the, the purpose of the system, right? I think the purpose of the system, you know, like as uh, Don Ella Meadows, uh, you know, would describe as one of the highest leverage points, right? That you could, that you could, uh, you know, take action to, you know, and, and change within a system. And I think w one of the the problems that we see today is essentially the purpose of so many of these systems is is not primarily to execute whatever function they're supposedly doing it's to it's it's to make a profit right in other words you know i mean the the organizational and the structural behavior of the system like you were saying earlier reflects its true purpose and that's to make a profit and if a lot of these things don't make a profit they simply don't continue to exist, right? You hear the phrase all the time. If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense, right? And that goes that goes a long way with a lot of these organizations. You're like, well, we'd love to do this, but it's just not profitable, right? <laughs> and we and we keep coming back to this over and over again. And so, and I think changing the purpose from profit, like, and and eliminating that has so many other repercussions throughout so many other systems that it could just really alter our fundamental economic and social systems to the core, essentially, right? There's so many, there's so many other leverage points that if you take money and if you take profit out of that, out of the, uh, you know, purpose box there, then everything starts to function differently, right? All of a sudden, we're not shipping goods over to Vietnam to be packaged because it's cheaper than paying people you know, 
down the street, <laughs> right? And things like that, you know, all of a sudden we can actually make better use of our resources through localization, through, you know, sharing, through open access to resources, through a lot of different things. We can implement proper technology in a lot of different ways, uh, you know, if we change the purpose of the system from profit to getting what everybody needs right finding a way to get everything to everybody right and th and that's and that's what these organizations are talking about and doing like the venus project the zeitgeist movement they're essentially eliminating the monetary system and a lot of the functionality that doesn't you know necessarily contribute to the benefit of mankind or the environment or i mean sorry humans mankind is canceled humankind lives forever Exactly right. <laughs> essentially, that's that's what we're doing a lot of the time. We're we're essentially trying to change the purpose of the system from making a profit to creating an abundance of necessities and goods, uh, you know, and just an environment for people where they can grow and prosper and self-express themselves uh, and and all those you know great things. I took a whole bunch of notes down, and so let me. Let me try to unpack a number of different ideas here and see if if we circle back. And Zachary, if I've missed something, uh, you know, please please holler. <laughs> That's my specialty. <laughs> so first of all, I love Stafford beer. <laughs> and um, I think all of you are really honing in on a very, very critical question and a critical observation first. The observation that Beer and Danella Meadows, among others, make is that the system as it exists is perfectly designed to achieve what it's achieving right now. And we are not going to be able to change the performance of that system unless we appreciate the difference between the purpose that it is designed to accomplish and the purpose that we want it to accomplish. And that is a very big leverage point. Um, I always love to quote Danella Meadows on her definition of a system, which is a set of interdependent parts that is perfectly organized to achieve something. And this is a world famous systems thinker. And you'd think the best word she can come up for in her own definition at the end of this is <laughs> something. <laughs> it's like, whoa, I mean, that's a red flag, isn't it? <laughs> um, and so I like to say that systems thinking is the ability to understand those interdependencies between the parts in such a way as to help us achieve a desired purpose rather than uh, the something that the system is accomplishing. When it comes to profit as a purpose, I love the observation that Peter Drucker made years ago, um, you know, one of the pioneering management thinkers, when he said, profit is a little bit like oxygen for an organization. You need profit of some kind. You need to be able to create more value than you expend. Otherwise, you won't survive. And yet, breathing is not our purpose as individuals. 
it's a necessity, but it's not the end in itself. And I think what has happened is that profit, in fact, has shifted from becoming a necessity to becoming the reason for existence. And that is, that is a very, very serious problem. Profit in and of itself might not be such a bad measure, except for one thing, which is it doesn't include the externalities of the, uh, the work of, if we focus on business, on what those businesses do. So it tends to defray as much of the social cost as possible onto other stakeholders and the environmental costs onto other stakeholders and just reap uh, the immediate benefits and maximize the, uh, the revenues and the benefits. So it isn't even that necessarily profit is a bad thing, it's how profit is calculated that is more of a serious concern. How does one measure value? And yes, value needs to be ad- measured and appreciated qualitatively and, uh, and not just quantitatively. And quality of life indicators and you know are very, very important. And we've seen over the last maybe 20, 30, 40 years, way more uh, effort on defining uh, what quality of life is and how that's different from quantity of life and what those indicators tell us about how life-giving our systems are or aren't. You know, I, I really appreciate your emphasis on purpose. I was just going to say, what's ironic is that this uh, supposed uh, emergent focus on quality of life doesn't seem to be producing a higher quality of life, especially for people in capitalist uh, countries like ourselves in the U.S. Instead, it gets just turned back over into the the quantitative aspect, like oh, um, a vacation to the beach would be, uh, you know, it would uh, increase your quality of life. Well, then let's increase the price on that so that the profits increased for whomever has control over that uh, outlet. And that, that's what I see on my side, but you're on the back end of things, which further enthralls me. I can see from your repertoire here, you have worked with uh, foundations such as the Kellogg Foundation, the World Bank, Center for Disease Control, Johnson & Johnson, Hewlett-Packard, and uh, at this point in time, post-pandemic, all those terms are derogatory. All those names are synonymous with corporate evil. And um, I don't know if you can go into any details there, but um, it, it just it blows my mind that you have participated in helping these for-profit systems achieve some 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 goal of theirs uh, when you could be an invaluable asset to something like I mentioned the Venus Project, whose founder Jacques Fresco. I'm think I think you'll be interested to know his catchphrase was, "We are a product of our environment." Yeah, I mean, I you know you you are my first introduction. Um, and I'm happy about that. I'm excited. Right. So that's great. I appreciate Just that. send you info. I, I listened to uh, some of your lectures and you were talking about uh, work trying to fix and assist in the homeless crisis. And I think that's uh, as good a point to sort of kind of zero in and uh, talk about this sort of thinking in a practical application. What is your uh, experience uh, dealing with that crisis? My commitment really is to 
improving quality of life. Zach mentioned the Homelessness Project uh, as an example of that. And I think I'll briefly talk about that one, uh, which was actually sponsored by the Kellogg Foundation, um, because it, it gets to this question, among other things, of purpose and uh, responsibility. Hmm. So um, one of the um, quotes that I love to refer to uh, that's in the book was by Bill Torbert, who was a professor emeritus of leadership at Boston College. And he said, if you are not aware of how you are part of the problem, you can't be part of the solution. So even in the social change world, we have people who are very committed to social change to uh, implementing solutions for different that, that address different symptoms. Um, but their assumption is that if I got more resources for my solutions, then the system would improve. And what we know about improving system performance is that it's not about optimizing each of the parts separately, but it's about improving the relationships among the parts of the system. I was just going to say um, that quote really reminds me of uh, Jeff Bezos coming back from space, you know, and having this pedantic observation of like, oh, we've got to take care of this beautiful earth, you know, as if he just looked at a screensaver of it and was like, oh, wow, I should value that. And he's like, well, yeah, we need to take all heavy industry and polluting. He said we need to take all heavy and polluting industry and put it into space with no ability or awareness to see, hey, maybe we shouldn't do pollutive industry. Maybe we shouldn't engage in a system that is endlessly, infinitely wasteful and destructive. Maybe we shouldn't do anything that is destructive on that level. But he and so many other people in that system, they really believe what they're doing is right. You know, I'm, I honestly... I, this, is an, uh, this is a controversial opinion in a lot of the circles I run in that, you know, the people in power aren't doing harm intentionally. And that's really hard for people to understand because it seems like the amount of evil that is done is so tremendous, so unfathomably cruel and heartless. But all these people doing it, many of them, like uh, LASA, the homeless uh, outreach organization in Los Angeles, who I have dealt with extensively in my work with the homeless— and which we, I'm sure, can get into in a bit, they, they, they believe in what they're doing. They think that what they're doing is helpful. They think that them getting more resources makes it so that they're going to be able to do more of a difference, when in its own way, institutions like that become a self-perpetuating mechanism that if, if homelessness ceased to exist, all these little organizations that, are, that exist to treat it would cease to exist. I, we, we had this conflict with LASA in L.A., as uh, they were rolling out this sweeps program, which was clearly to us, to everybody involved on the streets and, and you know, people who are living in the streets and the activists who are concerned were a clandestine measure of forcing people off the streets passive aggressively. You know, and, and I say that today uh, in this week, Los Angeles is moving to basically essentially totally criminalize all forms of camping, homelessness, uh, encampments under overpasses on all streets. They're trying to just completely eradicate this issue. That is their solution. So we were in this, this kind of conflict with members and high-ranking high members of LASA 
to protest this decision to basically, you know, corral and coerce a thousand people sleeping on the streets of Venice to leave. And we had it out with them and said, basically, this is class warfare. You might not understand this because you're not homeless. But, you know, we, there, there was a guy at that meeting who was like, these sweeps, they took my heart medication. You know, they take, they've taken all kinds of property from people. They, they harass them in these very clandestine ways. And after this meeting where we really just had it out with them and consistently the person in power, the most powerful member of Lhasa, just clearly reconciled everything she was doing to herself and said, no, no, this is the best thing. We're helping in the most way. I was talking to one of the sort of lower ranking people after that, and she looked at me with these bulging eyes. She was so, she was very like awakened in a way. She was very agitated. And she basically said like, I think about the Gestapo every day. She said in her own work, she thought, she, real, she realizes, like, I'm just like the Gestapo. I'm just doing what I'm told. You know, I don't have power in this situation really to do anything else. There's no other option that I can foresee. But I know that I'm not helping, that I'm hurting more than I'm helping. All these little issues, and I think homelessness is the perfect encapsulation. I mean, how many people could you get off the streets for the cost of one 10-minute, you know, space ride? It's, it's, it's ridiculous, and it's a problem that is completely manufactured. But there's so many things so many elements and aspects of our society that hugely profit off of all these aspects of deprivation for the direct uh, acquisition of profit, that there's really no incentive for this system to end these problems. Because it makes a shitload of money off them being problems. Well, it, it, let, let's stick with homelessness for a moment. Because um, one of the things that we discovered, and this was around um, developing a 10-year plan to end homelessness, in the Battle Creek, Michigan area, uh, where there were maybe 1,500 people or so homeless in a population of about 100,000. The key insight that the, and, and this was multi-stakeholder, so it was the nonprofits, including the homeless shelters, it was various levels of government, it was the businesses uh, in the area. And to their, surprise, uh, genuine surprise, they discovered that homeless shelters and emergency aid were actually part of the problem, not part of the solution. And the way they discovered that is by recognizing something that had become, um, was becoming increasingly known when I did this work about 15 years ago, that the key is to provide safe, affordable housing to homeless people. Imagine that. <laughs> I know. Imagine that. And here we are, uh, three of the four of us live in California, and it's incredible anymore, how uh, much intensity there is around resisting the creation of sufficient affordable housing because of land prices, because of, among other things, also commitment to open space. It's like we don't want to we don't want to upset the, the open space. And California has a lot of it protected. And, um, you know, we don't want poor people living in our backyard. A lot of the homelessness problem in the U.S. actually started with the closing of um, state mental hospitals in the early 80s. 
when Reagan came in to power and private sector was viewed as the answer to everything. And so what these people did in, in Calhoun County is to their credit, they began to see that shelters undermined their ability to implement a more permanent solution. One that is, of course, also ultimately much cheaper to give people a permanent roof over their head, an identity with an address. Um, an important part of dealing with mental health issues is, is just having a home mm-hmm. and going from there. So the next time that um, funding from the uh, Federal Housing and Urban and Development Uh, department came into that community, all of the shelters collectively decided to funnel that money to the one shelter in town that was actually set up to provide transitional housing to permanent housing. Because they could see that otherwise their system was perfectly set up to help people cope with homelessness, but not set up to end homelessness. And they needed to make a choice about which of those purposes was more important to them. Another thing you're pointing to, at least in in my experience, maybe it's different with the Venus Project, and I'd love to know more, is that there are always benefits of change and benefits of the status quo. And sometimes, ideally, we can think both and, how do we keep the benefits of the status quo and get the benefits of change? And sometimes we're gonna have to make trade-offs. We're gonna have to make choices between something we want and something we want even more. And I often give the simple analogy of a marriage or a a permanent relationship with some kind of partner where we are willing to give up a certain amount of our independence, like how we would live if we were on our own, in order to get the benefits of the relationship, of the partnership. We make the purpose of the relationship or the partnership more important at times than our own ego needs. And we get something out of that. But we forget that we may be giving something up in order to get something that is more important. And that's also what we call investing. We invest in something we're willing to be uncomfortable, to have less in the short term in order to have something even more important in the long term. And these trade-offs between short term and long term are something that systems thinking makes very explicit, as well as the overall you know, larger questions of, of cost and benefit both ways. There are costs of changing, and there are also costs of not changing. So we need to weigh all of those. You know, I'd love to hear from uh, maybe from Amanda uh, or any of you with respect to the Venus Project, 
what what are people aware of anything of having had to let go of in order to accomplish something that was even more valuable? And, and that's definitely uh, the biggest caveat when it comes to getting people on board with the Venus Project is because of the system that we live in and the way we've been indoctrinated to believe that simply having choices between 100 brands of shampoo or which fast food restaurant to spend your money at or which slave owner to devote your nine to five to, um, society in general is extremely hesitant to give up those freedoms in order to achieve uh, a benevolent, more abundant, you know, way of living. Um, but to go back just a little bit, I think it's important to sum up the first part of what you were telling us about your work with the Kellogg Foundation and that what basically happened, it sounds like, um, is uh, organizations and individuals came together, came together on a collaborative level and they materialized a rehabilitative result. Like what happened was they offered a rehabilitation for these people, not just a transition, which of course is pretty much synonymous, I guess. But um, when, when you look at solutions that our government tries to give to us, like the, the stimmies, the stimulus checks, those are like what you were describing with the shelters, temporary, and they just perpetuate the same vicious cycle. With the stimmies, we get a little bit of money in a couple of months, we're broke again and we need help again. But like with the UBI experiments that we've seen across the country since the pandemic, um, you, you can see the tangible proof that that is rehabilitating people, giving them the identity, like you mentioned, giving them the the, the the tangible resources they need to actually transition and become part of society. Of course, in this model, they're just giving them what they need to feed back into the for-profit loop versus just giving them access to the resources that sustain their well-being, thus societies. Yes, and I think that's an important point. Um, you really only empower people if, in my words, and really, it's it's a Marxian term, I believe, um, if you give them the factors of production, not just the outputs of production, give them the ability to create their own wealth, not just give them, you know, a, a piece of the existing pie. That was actually a point that I, I had written down that I kind of wanted to um, address a little bit, too. Essentially, I, I know we were talking about profit and purpose and, and all this, and, and I like the point that you made earlier, too, with profit kind of being more like oxygen. You know what I mean? It's kind of a necessity. and um, It's, it's I, also I, highly I, explosive under pressure. Well, Sure, exactly. Right, that too. It's another thing, right? So, and, and I and I think in our current system, the way we have you know our socioeconomic system set up via you know capitalism, it it essentially it is a necessity, right? But that also, I don't think that means that it has to be a necessity too. We could also experiment with other systems you know, to where profit doesn't necessarily even have to be a part of it, right? And that's essentially like what the Venus Project is, what the Zeitgeist Movement, all that. And and in no way, shape or form and, and do I want to say that like you have done anything like wrong or bad by, you know, working with companies like HP or, or you know, Kellogg or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's like, there's not absolutely nothing, you know, bad or anything about that. And and, and I think it's, you know, I, I, I admire your work. I, I love what you've done and everything too. And I think you've, you know, done a lot of help uh, overall, uh, you know, with the environment and companies and things like that. So, so I, I applaud you. And I think it's, I think it's really cool what, what you're doing through your work and everything too. 
and and on the other hand, it's it's kind of like you know I I I I I never really like using the term evil or anything like that. I, I try to view things like it is it, essentially it's a function of the system, right? It's it's operant conditioning. These companies and these entities and institutions and governments they're performing the way that the systems and and you know capitalism everything else incentivizes them to in order to make a profit and to keep existing and whatnot. That's essentially just how the system is set up, and it's and it's the way these companies operate right and and i think uh you know what we we really want to do in the long run is experiment with other systems that eliminate you know the 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 profit you know mechanism the monetary mechanism essentially at least within themselves like we've looked at you know cooperatives um is one of the things that i am interested in experimenting with trying to use cooperatives and equal ownership models essentially to where there's not one person at the top you know gaining all that profit and then maybe through say something like a network of cooperatives uh you know that also have have greater environmental transparency as well as uh, responsibility, greater accountability through through their actions for the environment and as far as greenhouse gas emissions and things like that. Uh, you know, maybe start using a network of cooperatives to provide people with free goods and services, right? Like universal basic resources instead of income, right? So you could have universal basic housing, universal basic food, water, shelter, energy, clothing, right? And through a network of cooperatives, all of a sudden, we would like to try to essentially start providing people with free resources that they wouldn't have to pay for, uh, you know, and if they still want to go out and participate with the current capitalist economic system, sure, go ahead, go get a job, that's fine, you know, whatever, if you want to still go make some money, that's fine. But if, you know, within this cooperative, uh, you know, or network of cooperatives, essentially what I, you know, would like to see eventually is people be able to have essentially their necessities for free, you know, and, and, and that might even eventually include things like education, child care, who knows, health care, uh, you know, if these cooperatives can be established, you know, long enough and become robust enough uh, with enough members and enough institutions and things like that. To me, uh, setting aside profit and using a cooperatively owned system equal ownership, uh, essentially, equitable ownership, more fair distribution of the resources and profits through more democratic uh, decision making as well. You know, and that's another aspect. There's there's kind of multiple aspects of how a quote unquote resource based economy or moneyless society would work. The Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement, they go into detail uh, with a lot of that too. This is actually a book. I don't know if you've heard of Peter Joseph or not. Highly recommend reading this book. Uh, this is called The New Human Rights Movement by Peter Joseph. Uh, and he details a lot of these types of systems towards the back as well. A uh, really, really informative book. Um, Peter Joseph's the founder of the Zeitgeist Movement, which is pretty much the person that I uh, originally came across that brought me on to the whole thing. And um, you can also watch his movie if you're into movies as well, Zeitgeist Addendum. Uh, is the movie that uh, I originally got turned on to the whole subject by. Um, but I find it very fascinating. You, know? you could and, say and, he's a post-scarcity civil engineer. And so that's kind of essentially the direction that we're trying to head. You know, we don't necessarily want to you know, tear down the current system as it is right now. We want to build something new, right, that... that experiments with different socioeconomic models, uh, you know, putting profit aside or as far away as we can from the whole thing, uh, you know, and trying to insert a different purpose, essentially, while, you know, getting kind of getting profit out of the way as much as we can, you know, what, what do you think about that? And, and would that make sense to you? Well, I, I, there, there's several 
uh, ways that I'd like to respond to that. One is I really <coughs> want to celebrate with you the importance of experiments. We need experiments to prove to ourselves that other ways of doing this are actually workable. And so you are pioneers with those experiments and they are critical. And one of the reasons that they're so important relates to another uh, very high leverage point in social systems, which is the underlying beliefs and assumptions that people have, sometimes called mental models, about the way things work and the way things should work. And what you're doing through these experiments is you're challenging in practice the way things uh, should work. And you're saying, no, they don't have to work that way. They could work some other way. So that, that's an essential uh, need that we have in society is to be able to have those demonstrations. People take system functions and system structures, the behavior that a system engenders as human nature. They can't see beyond the social structure that they're engaging in and uh, decouple it from their own being. The vast majority of people today, uh, even within the system, don't really understand that they're in a system. You know, they don't really understand that, you know, the use of money is, uh, f is, is a belief system. You know, they think it's inherent. They think it's intuitive. They think it's natural and that it's not, you know, uh, a deviation from the vast majority of human existence, which occurred without it. So I think really what we are engaging with is uh, a consistent model, mental model in humanity to reduce very complex systems to basically a string of pearls of, ins of, of isolated incidents, you know, like, like seeing each homeless person on the street as an isolated insulin, oh, they're a drug addict, or oh, they're mentally ill, instead of saying, okay, this is a consistent output that the high cost of living is squeezing people out of society, well, not just the high cost of living, but the corrosive, stressful, violent, destructive aspects of our culture are shoot, are, it's spinning around so quickly that it's shooting people out of it like a centrifuge, separating, you know, people that are less uh, apt at acquiescing to that system. So there's a term you used in one of the videos I was watching uh, called system archetypes, and I'm curious uh, what, what that means to you and how that sort of pertains to the uh, narratives that we create. Let, let, me, let me answer the systems archetypes and then pull that back into um, some of the other things we've been talking about. So systems archetypes are classic forms of wiring of parts of a system that show up in a wide variety of different settings. If you look at even traditional societies, there is a hierarchy. And part of that hierarchy is natural to social systems um, and human systems. Now, clearly there tend to be, um, you know, very traditional societies where that hierarchy is managed better, where resources are dis redistributed over time consciously 
because we know that if we allow those imbalances between uh, rich and poor, and again, rich and poor doesn't need to mean money. It can mean the bigger home. It can mean um, more deference. Whatever it is, there tends to be an accumulation of that. Capital is power, you know? It's, it's influence, it's leverage. A, a lot of it has to come down with resources and people being dependent upon other people in certain situations too. Es essentially what's happened in the past is people have been stripped of their means of subsisting for themselves for whatever reason that it is. And, 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 and in various situations, they have to become dependent upon other people and other institutions. And the, he, David's right, it doesn't necessarily only happen under capitalism. This is something that's happened time and time again into the past. I'm kind of saying that uh, capital itself doesn't just refer to money. Capital, you know, social capital, for example, that's not, it's not a referent in currency. It's about a social relationship that is an imbalance. And yeah, I think that's the essential critique of so many uh, past sort of socialist or communist experiments that I would still consider capitalist because they still exist on the fundamental paradigm of capitalism, which is an owner and a worker. You have someone who has the power over someone else, whether they're a bureaucrat, whether they say they're a, you know, a member of a workers' council. If they are basically determining where resources are going, they have power over someone else. And I think that is capital in its truest form, that it's leverage over someone else. Kind of more of authoritarian system, I, I would say, but as opposed to, you know— more of the, I think, I think the systems we're talking about are more, you know, democratic, especially through technological means. You know, I, I, that's kind of the future of where we're going here. I think is more tech technological uh, democracy, you know, people being able to give their feedback through, uh, you know, technological devices, as well as just automated feedback through sensors, uh, you know, the resource productions, uh, it, lots of things will be, you know, decided via algorithm uh, and, and on an automated basis, essentially, you know, and the type of decision making systems that we're talking about, you know, for a moneyless society or whatnot. How do you folks see the difference between socialism and social democracy? Because it seems to me that certain countries and, um, you know, Scandinavian being perhaps the most dramatic. Canada, which is actually a much more heterogeneous, much more mixed society, has still more elements of this, uh, certainly, than America, which is at the extreme in terms of in, an individualistic-oriented society. Um, but there is both a strong commitment to a social safety net and a very vibrant um, capitalist economy. And they feed each other. They don't undermine each other. They actually feed each other. I'm curious, you know, how that, that aspect of a social experiment and an economic experiment um, is something that you folks think about and talk about. I, I personally think if you're leaving, uh, you know, capitalism in it, that you're going to still get a lot of the symptoms of uh, you know, the profit mechanism in there and, and the, you know, incentivizing essentially profit over people, over the environment in a lot of cases. Um, you know, there's kind of a, 
you know, the, the, the debate of democratic socialism versus, you know, social democracy and whatnot, and, you know, which is, which is which and what's better. Um, and to me, I view, I view socialism essentially as, as kind of a transitional process towards, you know, an idealist idealistic communist society, right? Uh, idealist communist society eventually, uh, you know, has, has not existed on, on earth, right? And it's something that's theoretical, you know, that's very, in, in my opinion, is very similar to what we talk about, you know, in a resource-based economy and whatnot. That I, I almost use the two kind of interchangeably sometimes, although there are a lot of people who would disagree with that and say a resource-based economy is not communism. It's essentially far beyond communism and incorporates um, more recent uh, research and ideals and technology and things like that. As, as far as, you know, Canada and like other Scandinavian countries that do, you know, implement aspects of capitalism within these systems, uh, I, I, it works. I, th I think it's an improvement, right? I think they're headed in the right direction. And, and the more of these kind of social democratic changes that they can make, that they can put into the system, the better results, generally speaking, we're going to see. Uh, now, there's always going to be exceptions to that. You know, the, it, it will, the devil will be in the details as far as how these things play out and, and what sort of uh, decisions are made and, you know, institutions are exactly involved there. There's a lot of variables. Um, but but essentially, I think the more the more equally, you know, as far as distribution of resources and everything, I'd say equitable, right? One of the core problems with like the Norwegian or, you know, Northern European countries or even like Canada, Australia is the fact that these countries, even though they have a, a larger degree of equity or equality in their own countries, they still depend on a global system of imperialism, colonialism, and resource extraction that uses and benefits greatly off of the backs of other nations in the world. So that's, I think, the central problem. But what those nations and what social democracies show us, we look at happiness indexes and countries with more equality, countries with more public control, more public distribution, always skew higher that the less inequality there is, the more innovation there is, the higher health is, the less stress, the more uh, basically creativity and, and basically the more ability for humans to be humans exists. So I think they, the, those are, uh, they're, an, they're a good sign and they, they are evidence to, as experiments to show us, well, what would happen if we continually reduced the inequality? Would all those things like health, happiness, and innovation continue to go up? I think they would. I think that you can clearly see the less equal and equitable a nation is in their distribution of resources and, their, and the, the ability for their people, of all people, to access the needs that you need to live, the more uh, successful in a broad and true sense that they are. And to sort of mention, uh, you know, you talked about profit is not a bad thing. I think in itself, in, in redefining profit or going, we want to continually increase human well-being, innovation, creativity. We want to continually increase our actual productive outputs. But I think the systems that we have today are all so messed up that even if we look at more equitable experiments or, or equitable governments, they're still connected to a global system. And they, they are pieces of that system that sort of feed it. They keep it going. I mean, there's like France, for example, owns, you know, huge uh, swaths of Africa still. 
and they have a pretty nice society. They have, you know, their their people have healthcare and they have free college and all that stuff. But that's being clawed out of other nations. So it's it's and it's still basically perpetuating environmental destruction elsewhere. Maybe it's not in their country. Maybe the air quality is better there, but it's still passing the buck and continuing that cycle, that system that these uh, nations are, you know benefactors of this system that profit off of this system of global imperialism i'm not sure it's a little um abstract i think whenever i hear the word democracy thrown around whether it's in the context of social democracy political democracy um uh u.s um staging uh you know war or i should say coups and other in other countries in order to affect democracy. Um, I cringe a little because democracy is essentially the participation of everyone who has an opinion, right? Like if you have an opinion, you can throw it in the bucket and it'll get, it'll get tossed around and, and who, you know, whatever the majority of opinions are in that bucket is what presides. Um, and to me, I think democracy is a logical fallacy in a system where everyone's entitled to their opinion and everyone's opinion is subjective and usually polarized because the particular system that we live in now is designed to polarize people and give people the false the false belief that they have a freedom and that their opinion matters and it counts when in fact you know if you're wrong you're wrong <laughs> i guess i'm kind of rambling but democracy and the term of democracy just kind of makes me cringe because i don't think that we yet understand how to effectively utilize it. Um, in a resource-based economy, for instance, where uh, the education, the curriculum is vastly different than what it is now uh, in a for-profit uh, environment, everyone's relatively educated in survival in an egalitarian society, in the skill sets that interest them, that uh, that pique their, their hierarchy of motivation, and so on and so forth. And so in a democracy in that setting, people have the skill sets to effectively participate in a social democracy versus just throwing their opinion in there because it's tradition or it's what feels right or it's what they've been told to do all their life or whatever. Well, I, I think that democracy, for it to work, one definitely needs to be very, very closely tied to education. You know, certainly the other thing that we've seen uh, in the U.S. Uh, especially, but I think in other places as well, is uh, the one dollar, one vote problem where there, I believe, a lot of, of elections are swayed uh, behind the scenes by wealthy, usually wealthy conservative people who uh, see their own immediate self-interests and understand that one way to uh, maintain their own self-interest is to weaken government overall and to uh, fan ethnic tension as ways of redirecting uh, anger that would be otherwise legitimately pointed at the inequities that they benefit from by pointing people with less resources against each other and against government, both of which further empower you know the 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 fewer people who control or or try to control more and more uh, the democratic process. Our government institutions are intentionally sabotaged 
like uh, any other alternative experiment of a social system is overseas, like Cuba, for example, you know, we are waging economic warfare on Cuba and have been for decades. We've attempted to assassinate their leaders hundreds of times. You know, it's like, you know, the Soviet Union as well. The United States surrounded them, blockaded them, prevented them from trading, and then pointed to them and said, oh, look, it doesn't work. It's a failure. It fails. And then they use that to justify more privatization. And they say, look how successful we are. Maybe a kind of a way to round things out and kind of bring things full circle, because I can kind of feel things kind of spreading off into their incipient little parts. We're losing a sense of the interconnectedness of the whole system. So I just want to kind of ask you, David, I think this will be a great kind of way to, to bring it all full circle. How is systems thinking the solution and what are systemic structural solutions to our problems? I mean, this is something that you are clearly, uh, I will say, an expert about. And this is, this is the, the point of like our whole show. This is, we keep saying, oh yeah, we need systemic solutions. We need to change the system and the structure. So what do you think, you know, broad view, long view, you know, what, what do you think that the answers are to these problems, these complicated, interwoven, confusing problems? Well, I, I'll refer and summarize, I guess, the last chapter of my book, Becoming a Systems Thinker. Systems thinking, it's not just what you think. And the term thinking is in the phrase, but that tends to lead people to assume that it's simply a cognitive um, you know, set of principles and, and ideas and tools. I think in closing, what I want to emphasize is one, yes, it is very helpful to understand cognitively how systems behave and how systems evolve. There are time delays. Small changes can be magnified. We need to understand how people think, what are their underlying beliefs and assumptions, and use experiments to challenge those, all of which we've been talking about on this call. Um, there is also an emotional component to systems work. And it starts with the importance of compassion. Everybody is doing the best they can with what they know at the time. Now, some people know precious little and can be outright dangerous and outright evil, and I'm not excusing or ignoring that. But for most people, and I think you folks have, you know, acknowledged that as well, people are doing the best they can with what they understand of a much more complex world. They see the immediate benefits of their actions and assume because the immediate benefits are there that those are actually beneficial actions. In the long term for them, much less on other people in the system. But they don't see the limitations of that assumption. Uh, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. The identification with how we think is so strong, there's enormous emotional attachment to how we think about things. And so we need to be able to work the emotional challenges of this work to be able to support people to take responsibility for problems, not just for solutions, to recognize interdependencies, to expand their view 
beyond their what they immediately see. So that requires emotional intelligence. There's a behavioral component. This is something that needs to be done collectively. So a lot of the work I do is multi-stakeholder work. How does it look from a business perspective, from a, a government public interest perspective, from a community and social sector perspective, um, from the viewpoint of the ultimate beneficiary who often gets lost in the process, like interviewing homeless people about what would work for them. And finally, to me, there's another aspect to this that I want to leave you with, which is I believe that systems thinking is a spiritual practice. And in the following way, where do we first learn that everything is connected? It starts in our religious wisdom traditions, whether they be Western or Eastern, there is some sense of oneness and connectedness among different parts. So the question is, and that's what systems thinking is about, it's about connectedness. And just because something is connected doesn't mean it's connected for the good. You can be in a relationship that builds both of you up, and you can also be in a relationship that tears both of you down. So then the question becomes, one, to be aware of that connectedness, two, to take it seriously and to recognize that you always have choices as to whether to further constructive connectedness or destructive connectedness. And where those choices come in and how we cultivate healthier choices to me is a function of character development. Developing our capacity for humility, our capacity for curiosity, our capacity for courage to take stands against popular assumptions because we think long-term, not just short. The compassion for recognizing that other people see what they see and not to blame them for that, but to acknowledge them and to, from there to gently help them expand their perspective rather than try to tear it down. It requires patience. It requires persistence. It requires vision. All of these are character traits that need to be cultivated if we are going to be truly systemic in the way that we work and live. So we are all working within the monetary system still to support ourselves and for the folks out there that really care about these projects and information and actually want to help us move these things forward, uh, you can go to our Patreon page and donate just $5 a month or more and that really helps us out. Uh, the more we can devote our time and effort to alternative media such as this as well as other projects that can help move society forward in positive and equitable ways. And just so our listeners know, this podcast isn't where we're stopping either. We're putting our money where our mouth is, and we're doing everything we can to help create and build projects like the ones we're talking about on this show. Thank you for all your support. We deeply appreciate every single bit of it, and we hope that we can continue to help bring information like this and more into the world well into the future. <laughs>